0: I want to thank all of you for being present. I'd actually like to ask those of you on the outside edges to move toward the center of the aisle so that people that come in late can find a seat. If it's all right. Um, um, I'm so appreciative of so many things this this week. Um, just seems like about 15 minutes ago that we were finishing up our Christmas dinner last evening, and uh, just a wonderful time of uh, just enjoying each other's presence. Missing some who got caught in the COVID uh, testing uh, challenge, so to speak, and uh, but but at the same time, just a, a wonderful day. But then thinking back over the week especially back to last Sunday. I'm so grateful for, for the, uh, especially for the message last Sunday. Everything about uh, last Sunday was just a, a really wonderful time. But Kyle's uh, message, he, he referred to it earlier about uh, Elizabeth and, and Mary and the idea of loss and hope and that remarkable story and drawing us into it from Luke chapter 1 and so forth. And, and then just <laughs> to thank all of the, the the young people and the children who participated in the pageant uh, last last week. Uh, uh, I don't know that you could do it better that you know, with uh, uh, using those resources and so forth. And if you didn't get to see it, uh, you can get to see it online. It's on our website and also on YouTube. And so please... Uh, Please look at that. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Thanks also to those who participated through gifts uh, or through it being here in person in the outreach to the homeless yesterday by, with Community of Hope, the Christmas dinner, and all of those things, the gifts that were distributed and so on. Um, just want to say one thing that is by way of announcement. Uh, we've been having uh, on Tuesday evenings a, a class uh, called Why These Books. And we're taking a little breather, a little break from that, not a breather, a break from it. And, uh, and then on January the 11th, we're going to start up with a new topic, and that topic will be uh, about the law, the law of Moses, both in the Old Testament and in the New. We're going to start off, I think, pretty much working uh, with some with Deuteronomy, but just trying to understand uh, some the way in which this, uh, this great phenomenon of the Torah in both the Old Testament and in the new works uh, for us. So we want to invite you, if you're at all interested in reflecting on these things, to come and and join us in that time. Please pray for our nation and our whole world as this pandemic keeps, (sighs) keeps destroying, destroying lives, destroying livelihoods, upsetting families and relationships. It was just a few weeks ago that any of us had ever heard about the Omicron variant of COVID-19, but its power to infect people widely has hit all of us during this holiday season. So uh, if you're here, I would imagine that you're likely vaccinated, but if you're not, if you hear my voice, get yourself vaccinated. We don't want to lose you and urge others that you know to get vaccinated and to take all the precautions that are necessary it's a shared threat and we need to help each other uh together as um as kyle mentioned at the beginning uh, the introduction through this advent season we've been shaping our meditations around the various themes of advent the traditional themes of advent and um Going all the way back to our, to our congregational retreat and that theme of what sustains us in, in the idea of holy longing, a longing for God in, in every way. And, uh, and we've linked up as, as Kyle um, identified these parallels of need and love, grief and joy, power and peace, loss and hope. Loss and hope was the one that, that Kyle led us through this last, um, last Sunday. And so this morning, I, though, just want to kind of add on to the completed series of, of Advent, uh, the four Sundays of Advent, with uh, a Boxing Day edition. Uh, we're going to be coming up to a new year in this uh, this next Saturday. And I want to add the, the uh, additional element of holy longing already and... Not yet. That seems to me at least uh, something that can fit uh, in between this, uh, these themes of holy longing that we've already had and the idea of, of moving into a new year. Already and not yet. If, you, if you've ever studied the, the Bible very much at all, you, you know that you come across this, that things that have already happened but we're also awaiting. That's sort of the idea of holy longing. That's the idea of Advent, of, of awaiting something that is coming, someone who is coming. And one of the most basic aspects of longing in the experience of our faith is uh, as we have this fundamental commitment to, to Jesus is its orientation toward the future. The holy longing that we talk about whenever we use this as a, as a theme is not a longing for a golden past when things were better, when, when we were better. When the world was better and all those things. You know how you can play, play that, that game. You can. Ancient people often did it. We do it in our time. We put on the right glasses with the right filters to cast a rosy glow over some part of the past that we want to focus on. And usually it's a glow that comes from ignoring concrete realities of the past. This longing that we're talking about in this theme is a longing for reality, a longing for God, for the one God who throughout the story of the Bible leads God's people on a journey through difficulty, often through suffering, into a future, a future of hope that they can, usually as we observe it going through the scriptures, that they can hardly begin to imagine. From the very first verses of the Bible, we learn of a universal creator God who delights in the very good creation that he has created. And that he he makes these human beings, makes them male and female, makes them in God's own image. There is not in the whole first chapter of Genesis, as the whole story starts, there's not the least hint of anything Uh, that's either evil or even painful in all of that creation. This God of our longing is the God of all humanity, of all reality, the God of truth, the God of goodness and beauty, God that is in the unfolding of his creation. He gives to us human beings, us, a moral conscience, he gives to us a consciousness of self. He releases us in freedom, and uh, and 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 well, you know the story. You can find it starting in Genesis uh, chapter three, especially, but even in chapter two, with the idea of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the idea of death. The very first couple has their first child, and that. First child turns out to be a murderer, Cain killing Abel. He's also a coward, but also a maker of culture. And you follow on down the line. You know the story. The great Abraham follows God, is the father of the faithful, but he's also, he also lies about his wife, and he gives her away so as to protect himself because he's fearful and all of that. Moses is God's great prophet going up on Mount Sinai to receive that Torah that I was just talking about. And down at the very bottom of the mountain, the people are already making idols that, uh, that, that contradict the, the basic idea of that law that, that, God, that Moses is being given. The great God of creation, as we watch through the, the story, is certainly beyond our imagination, he's beyond our description. And in, there is a sense in which, of course, we can say that he's the same as Scripture does, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But that God of all reality, as we watch through the story, chooses to deal with peoples, the peoples of this whole creation, in very different ways throughout the history that unfolds. There's always a before and after and already and a not Yet. God's greatness may be unchanging on a scale that's beyond our reach. But that greatness is such that he deals with us human beings in the changing and unfolding story of a history shaped by the freedom that he gives to us humans. Ah, We make so many blunders and self-enslaving mistakes. And we create so many wrongs and ways of oppressing each other that we may well wish that God had not given freedom to us humans. And actually, you do find it often argued that if God were really good, he wouldn't have given us freedom. But without it, we would not be human beings. We would not be in the image of God, not able to share in the process of creating a future that is part of who we are. Through the vast tapestry of the story of Israel in the Hebrew Bible, we, in our time, reading back, looking back, we get to watch that very challenging story. It's often very beautiful, and we worship with the, the psalms, and find, there's so many remarkable and inspiring stories. But, but just as often, it's not easy And often we want to look away. We have trouble making sense of what was going on. God interacted with the people, not in some rarefied way, separated from the culture within which they lived, but rather within the context of language and law and symbolic practices and government and family structure and resources that was all around them. Yes, he changed it. Yes, he shaped it. But yes, it was still within that that world. Indeed, we gradually realize that so many of the traditions of the Hebrew Bible were finally put into writing so as to become scripture in the time of sort of the last chapters of the story, the great crisis of the Babylonian exile, when the whole nation seemed to be on the verge of complete destruction. So many of the stories Help to explicate how things went so wrong in a story of such hope. There is a profound, holy longing for a new future that God will bring, even after the people of Israel have been struggling under the weight of empires and self destructive visions of national glory. The already part of the story was truly rich, but also it was so troubled the visions of a transformed future a not yet that is in God's grace and in God's hands that shines in the in the text as we read them it shines in those in the psalms often it certainly shines in the prophets in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and then it, through the centuries that followed and notice that it's through centuries that followed the jewish people strove to understand where God was leading them out of this complicated, difficult, and unique history. There were many reformers calling for Israel to renew the calling of God, to be a distinct people, to separate from the pagan nations all around, waiting for a new David, a new national leader, etc. That's where we are when we come to Advent, to the birth of Jesus that we've been celebrating through these weeks. The seeds were all planted. The language of hope, the not yet, now comes to be fulfilled. It's in the poetry of God's kingdom that you can hear in those Psalms and in Isaiah and elsewhere. It's in the language of the birth, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the root of Jesse, the seed of David, and so forth. It's in the language of the servant of the Lord. It's in the language of the glorious Son of Man who receives the eternal kingdom, not only over all the land of Israel, but over all the earth. There was the expectation of a prophet like Moses. There was even the mysterious meditation of Isaiah on the suffering servant. It would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. We can see the pieces as we look back. We can see them so clearly in retrospect. But no one at the time could even imagine the boldness of God, the unexpected grace of God that could show that these diverse hopes and many others belong together. The not yet of so many hopes and aspirations. And if you think about the time of of Advent, think about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Think about Simeon and Anna. Think about Mary. These, that not yet of all of these hopes were molded together in a single unity that no one could have expected. God's own self came among us. People had hoped for a great messianic king like other kings but much better. But God came. God's own self came. It was incarnation. That's where that word comes into play. The incarnation of God in flesh as one of us with all the weakness and vulnerability of a baby. It was the not yet of that whole story of Scripture coming to fulfillment, but in, a, in such a surprising and transforming way that all the expectations of the future that people had had were remade. God is bolder than we humans ever expect. All the multifaceted, not yet of Israel's troubled and oppressed Expectations became the already of the gospel. God with us. God breaking in. Not with a new philosophy, a new set of instructions, a new law, but in person as one sharing our struggles and sufferings. As one who knows the vast reality. The vast reality. Who knows that vast reality of God's self giving love and what that can mean, and comes not just to tell us about it, but to live it out, to live that love by taking on all our sin and even our death. The Son of God who comes to make each of us frail human beings a daughter or son of God, in the full sense of sharing in God's life and sharing in God's Holy Spirit, even now, as a result of Jesus' conquest of death on the cross. And as you just think about it, it just goes on and on. That is this good news. That's what Advent's about. That's why we do this. No one believed such an event was possible. No one expected it. No one would have or even could have invented it. Jesus came, Advent, incarnation, and Jesus lived it. It actually happened. It became a fact of history, lived to the full in Jesus before even those closest to Jesus realized what was happening. And so this is what brings us through Advent here on Boxing Day to these amazing texts that you heard read in our call to worship and in our scripture reading this morning. Paul writing to the Romans in Romans 8 and John writing in 1 John chapter 3. Both John and Paul show how followers of Jesus are called into a new already not yet reality. But it's now one that includes all of humanity, not just a small, clearly defined people of God in one nation and so on. All of the humanity and all of the created world. Passages that talked about the land now are 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 understood to refer to the her, the earth the whole created world we reach back to the grand vision of Genesis 1 and the call for every human being to be shaped in the image of God and John in that text that you heard Mary read so beautifully for us just just before the the the, the sermon today in, in in 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 he starts with the past of jesus the past manifestation of god in jesus that he described at the beginning of the letter if you remember back at the first verses of the of the of the letter what we have touched what we have seen what we have seen with our own eyes what we've touched with our own hands concerning the word of of life and so forth he starts from that past clear manifestation of god in jesus and then places us between that event and the future manifestation of Jesus and of God that is still out in the future at a time known only to God. We live between those and participate in both. He wants us to see that we live continually within and as part of the reality that became full reality in Jesus. And will be clearly manifest for us again as God brings it about. Just think about that for a minute. It means a lot of times, and this is a great thing to say, and I, I'm not in any way wanting to denigrate it, but a lot of times it's the very first in the heart of all of Christianity. People often say that God created everything, God makes everything, and everything is aimed toward bringing God glory. honor celebrating God's glory and that's that's fine that's great but as one sees here there is this other element of what God is actually doing that God is seeking you seeking us God wants us not that he wants to make some bargain with us and make us rich and wealthy so that we'll really be good followers and all of that sort of thing or some other thing that we really deny everything and don't do anything that we like and tr- really try to make ourselves miserable so that we'll be good, whatever it is. God created every single one of us and wants that relationship. And it's that that is in process in this already, not yet. So I want to read again First John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. I'm reading it in my, my own translation here, as I often do. Just consider the kind of love that the Father has given us. That we're called children of God. And none of that. And we are that. That's why this cosmic structure doesn't grasp what we're about. Because it never grasps what God is about. Beloved friends, we're God's children right now. And it hasn't yet become clearly manifest what we're going to be. What we do know is that when God in Jesus makes himself clearly manifest, we're going to be like him. Because we'll see God as God genuinely is. And all who hold on to this hope founded on God are training themselves to live with true sincerity, just as they realize that God is wholly true. Oh my, just the phrases of this provide so much space, so much depth for meditation and reflection. One of the striking things is that John that, that John sees when he sees the manifestation of God in Jesus is the astonishing love that God shows for us. Behold what sort of love the Father has given to us. His, we're just his creatures. Supposedly he can make all the creatures he wants to. But we're part of a whole creation that is a manifestation of God's love. Yes, indeed, that's why there can never be any real separation between the physical and the spiritual. That's something that John emphasizes all the way through 1 John, talking about what we've handled with our hands and seen with our eyes concerning the word of life and so forth. But by coming in human form, in all the, the things that Jesus did and taught and suffered and accomplished, God showed an especially focused love for these creatures filling to capacity the pews today. God showed a devotion, an interest, a focus on us people, us creatures here and everywhere across this world. For these creatures that He's given, a, to whom He's given a, a capability for moral freedom, for creativity, for imagination, for a consciousness of ourselves, and for complex relationships. John helps us to understand it by using the language of parent and child, familiar to all of us. Consider what sort of love the Father has given us, that we're called children. Of God, and we are, he says. There's a kind of astonishment, amazement that flows through John when he brings this reality before our eyes. John wants us to see that this is not simply a concept or a belief, but a reality that, like Jesus' incarnation, brings together the realms of God and our own realm. Because of that reach, that reach into God's realm and into our own down-to-earth, to put it lightly, life, we don't have any precise human language for it. I don't know how it is that God's Holy Spirit dwells in you and in me. But he does i don't know how resurrection is going to take place but it is and it will and so forth but so all of this we have to use the language of analogy of metaphor to point beyond our normal experience at the beginning of john's gospel you remember in the, that wonderful amazing first first chapter he talks about this this experience using the same kind of metaphors this is, Uh, The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who received him, he gave to them authority to become children of God, who trusted in his identity, who were begotten not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, of man, but from God. And then that other passage in Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 25, it's It's so remarkable how parallel they are as they describe the same already and not yet, and use much of the same kind of language, even though so far as we know, John and Paul were relatively far apart in these things. not I don't mean conceptually, but I mean physically and geographically. He Paul describes this reality using though language that especially draws on the deliverance from slavery that took place in the Exodus, and especially from the presence of the Spirit of God that's given to us in Jesus. Again, just listen to these words. Just let them flow over you. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 25. And again, I'm going to read from my my own kind of explanatory translation. Sisters and brothers, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to be trapped again by fear. Rather, you received a spirit that marks you as God's own children. A spirit that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself is bearing testimony along with our spirit that we're God's children. But notice, if we're children, then we're also heirs. We're heirs of God as our father and fellow heirs with Christ, the anointed king. But that also means ah, that we take on suffering just as he did in order that we may also share with him in his glory. For I've come to realize that the sufferings we're going through right now can't be compared with the glory that God is going to reveal for us. For God's creation is waiting with eager longing for when he ultimately reveals all the children of God. For the creation was subjected to its own frustration, not willingly, but because of him who made it subject to us. Now, that embodied hope. Namely, that the creation itself will be set free from the slavery of being corrupted and will be released into the freedom of the glory of God's children. Paul wants us to know with our whole being that we honor physical persons who carry in ourselves the very spirit of the God of the universe. We're very physical, and in a time of pandemic and violence, we know that every day. Each of us is a concrete embodiment of the reality of God's creation that brings into a single being like like us, both the realm of God, as we were talking about, namely the Holy Spirit of God, God's own life, and all the physical limitations of human life, the vulnerabilities that we know so well. We unite both physical vulnerability to disease, but also, of course, to abuse and suffering and injustice, and life's potential for beauty and for love and for noble service and for delight. Paul doesn't want either us, who are reading this many centuries down the line, or the Romans that he's writing the letter to originally, to deny or minimize our physical nature with all of its possibilities and all of its limitations. We, I, even you, are subject to death. We're limited in our grasp of our own problems because we see, (laughs) like I do through one pair of eyes and one place within one line of life experiences, We have our own particular hurts and blinders and our temptations and our childhood experiences and our ethnic culture and our knowledge, either great or small, our sensitivities, our prejudices, our ambitions, our angers, our self-deceptions, and you know the story. It goes on and on and on. All of these are real and and contribute to what Paul calls our flesh. This is not the physical body when he uses that term, but it's all the smog of our limited and broken lives that dims our view of God's reality, God's great reality. Our fears are right there in front of us. They're so easily seen, sort of, by us, though we deceive ourselves a lot of times about them. But reality is more. What God has done in Jesus is to come among us, as we've said, as a full human being, experiencing all that pain and brokenness and betrayal and hurt and temptation and suffering that create the blinding smog of our our lives. But in his death and resurrection, he also brings us to God's tender, loving presence as Abba, dear Father and the unconquerable life of God in God's Holy Spirit. What God has done in Jesus is to give, by grace, this new relationship to God as God's own daughters and sons. But God doesn't show himself as, The word father, especially back in that time, often meant the patriarch, the powerful patriarch of the family who controlled everything. That was the common way, and it was what was ensconced in law in the Roman Empire. But rather, God is called the loving, self-giving Abba who remakes and renews the very reality of the one God that we had thought we knew and shows the love with which God enfolds his creation. It is hard for us to take in such extravagantly good news. The Spirit must dwell in us and speak from within to us and through us, testifying to what God has created for us. It's because of that Spirit that we can cry, Abba, Father, It's a truth, a a reality that's far larger, more comprehensive, more wonderful than anything we can see simply about ourselves. I could never know that about myself, except, of course, by flattery. Loved by the creator of all that exists, even when I don't love myself. Given God's life by God's own gracious gift, even when I deny my own life, created with soaring voices and dancing feet and serving hands and a wonderful wild imagination as well as a moral compass and hearts that love and embrace others and bodies and souls that can receive that very Spirit of God, we can be, we are God's own children. In that identity, we live between the already and the not yet. What God has already shown us is wonderful. But in it, we learn that we are living a role not only for ourselves, but in some mysterious way for all of creation. Remember the last sentences of of that reading from Romans. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. For we're aware that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering great pain right up to the present. But that's not all. We ourselves are part of it as we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We're also groaning inwardly as we anticipate the full experience of being God's children. The deliverance of our bodies from all that enslaves them. For this is the hope for which we were saved. Now, a hope that's already seen is not a hope. For who hopes for what they clearly see? But if we're hoping for something that's still beyond our sight, we anticipate it with enduring patience. Paul uses language here that's often used for the intense pain of a woman in child going through childbirth often translated as travail. The pain that even in the best natural circumstances can be overwhelming as it leads to a child, a new life coming into the world. If all goes well, it leads to the fulfillment of long expectations and joy at a new wonderful life. The presence of the Spirit does not take away the suffering or its power, but it changes it. The spirit is the beginning, what Paul calls the first fruits of that surprising new creation in you, in us. That's new life. The suffering in all its excruciating variety is part of death, it's part of mortality, part of the slavery, of being corrupted, that all creation experiences. It's a crucial part of the whole story. But it's not the end of the story. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus ultimately conquers death. Has conquered death. We're allowed by God's grace to share in him. And in that way to share in his victory. But now it's in the midst of a suffering world. That we bear witness to his incarnation bear witness to his cross bear witness to his resurrection the spirit is the first experience as much as we can bear of it in this body to the full experience of being God's children as God will ultimately reveal then is the surprise the great not yet that we can't even imagine certainly not fully imagined much as we try evidently this body so vulnerable that we sit in this room wearing masks even if you're fully vaccinated this body this vulnerable body can be recreated by our Abba to truly share in his glorious life with all the self-giving love that we see in Jesus This is the hope that carries us through, that bears the weight of our lives. We journey with God into the future. God gives us his spirit now. We still endure suffering, but we live joyfully by that spirit. Beloved friends, we are God's children right now, John says. And it hasn't yet become clearly manifest what we're going to be. What we do know is that when God and Jesus makes himself clearly manifest, we're going to be like him. Because we'll see God as God genuinely is. Amen. Amen.